Very good. Jesus is, uh, when you have the time to stop and think, it, uh, what he's done is, is truly amazing. And, uh, and that's part of what we do as a church. And often, uh, even sometimes at church, we get distracted and, and don't even give Jesus the full focus and think about the, the complexity and the depth of what he's actually done. So, I mean, I hope this comes across today that uh, what he's done for us is just, just an incredible act and uh, some of the responses there. Let me see if I can go back. Say uh, compassionate. Okay, I think I'll start from there. This is some of the things that uh, elicits response. Uh, compassionate is with us. He's a saviour. We can pray to him. Forgiveness, grace, love, loving, comfort. We don't uh, that he's in control. We don't need to worry. We have security, peace, fun, friend, the way, the truth, and the life. Forgiving, merciful, loving, obedient. He's a teacher. Very good. Unrelenting, nice Chris, mercy, redeemer, the cross, the high priest whom shed his blood for God's love and will. Over the last um, few weeks, I've been doing a series just uh, exploring this idea of the authenticity of Scripture, having a, a way that we can actually explain uh, our faith to people in a in a real way when they ask, and in order to do that, you have to have this confidence that you know knowledge of who Jesus is, and uh, based on based on true scripture on on what actually does scripture say, and because scripture really is the only solid evidence that we have of knowing that Jesus is true. Um, you know, we have faith and that is solid. But Scripture, the words actually written and recorded um, are so reliable. And so I've, I've been speaking about this idea. So today I just want to think about how uh, credible uh, some of the eyewitnesses were um, and because that really is the solid foundation for our faith. So I want to think about what actually uh, happened and how we can actually know that this is true. Because if this whole book is a hoax of some sort, then really our faith has nothing to stand on. And so, you know, how, how assured are you that what you're reading is actual words of Scripture are from God and actually reliable and true? And I'm sure we'll all say we believe it. That's why we wouldn't be here otherwise. But just keep in mind that these, these are some of the, the things that you can actually use to explain to people some of the evidence, if you like, to uh, justify your faith and help people explain or understand the Bible in, in a way that say this is the actual uh, a book that we can really stand on and, and rely on. So today we're going to have a look at some of these questions. Did the eyewitnesses uh, have a bias? Were they writing from a particular perspective? Uh, did they invent the story and did the story then grow into legend? And I ask these questions because um, those things are not uncommon in history books. Uh, take, for example, uh, Alexander the Great. How long after his 
uh, death was his biographies written. Anyone want to hazard a guess? Any history teachers among us? So after he died, how long do you think it was after his death that uh, people started writing about him? Anyone chat? No ideas? It's more than 100? More than 100 years? More than 200? No one's got any idea? Nick says 500. Where's Nick? That's a close guess, Nick. It's actually 400 years later. 400 years after, there were two, two biographies written. One was uh, by Ariane and the other Plutarch, and they were written in uh, 300 and, sorry, it, Alexander died in 323 BC. So these guys wrote 400 years after his death. And so it's easy to sort of say, well, some of these biographies really were written from a bias and they had some of the, the truth that had actually happened had actually turned into legend at that point as well. And so the reliability of uh, these accounts, you know, you can bring into question. Even our own uh, Captain Cook, I've been thinking about history and, and the actual arrival of, of Captain Cook. Actually, Cat, have we got that? Did you manage to get that picture? I'm not sure whether we can do this, but there's a picture of Captain Cook arriving on, uh, on Australian soil. And uh, so this is an artist's impression. And I can remember seeing this when I was at school, in primary school, and learning about the, the arrival of Captain Cook. And, uh, and this photo sort of depicts different people arriving. Uh, you can obviously see who Captain Cook is there. He's given instructions. And it looks to me like he's saying to the people with guns, uh, don't shoot at those guys over there with spears. Now, when I've been thinking and looking into researching this, this is actually turns out to be a painting that was painted in about uh, 1900 uh, in the, uh, when Australia became a federation. And so... Even, even that is written 100, 120 years after. And so this is an artist's perspective of what actually happened. The only way you can actually go back to finding some of the truth is probably going directly to Captain Cook's journal. And in his journal, I was reading it, it actually says that he was the one, he fired three shots. The first was a warning shot because they were being, um, had rocks chucked at them. Um, the second was uh, actually shot someone and he took off into the bush and the third, so he fired three shots. So that picture is not even, is not true. And yet we were taught, I'm assuming you went to primary school and you were taught uh, history, but we were taught history from a British perspective. And so we went through all through um, primary school learning about Captain Cook and the first fleet and the convicts and all of that thing. Now, that's only one part of actually what happened. There were uh, a whole group of people, Aboriginal people, on the on the land at that time, and but we don't have their perspective, if you know what I mean. Nothing was written to tell us about what they experienced and we were sort of taught that they just moved back peacefully into the uh, Australian bush. But as you do the research, you can see that that is actually not true. There was uh, a continual war that went on and Aboriginals fighting for what they were, their, their, their land. 
and uh, Cook just came in and claimed it because he said that they, there's no claim on the land and so he just took control of it, just put a flag in the ground and claimed it for King George. So my point is that even history, our Australian history, is written from a perspective that is twisted. We've only got half the story. And so the question you have to ask then is you know, when you come to Scripture, was it written from a, from a people's perspective? Was someone trying to get an agenda across here? And that's a valid question that we need to uh, consider in history. So is that the case for the New Testament? Because the people who recorded it had this perspective. They were seeing something and they've recorded scripture. Uh, this has those stories over the years turned into legend? That's a valid question. Before you know it, did this man who did some uh, things around the community, uh, some, you know, healing, different things like that, did those things turn into miracles and then those miracles, did they say, you know, then you can make this justification that Jesus is actually God? So one of the key evidences for the fact that the Scripture is actually true is that the people who wrote wrote down the account were the people who actually saw it. They were actually eyewitnesses. And a few weeks ago I talked about the how reliable eyewitnesses are, and especially if there's more than one and there's more than two and there's turns out to be hundreds and all of these people are all saying the same thing, then you can really make a strong case for the fact that actually this is what happened. And so these are primary witnesses, people like Peter and John and Matthew and James, and they've written down their, their accounts. Not 400 years later, how many years after Jesus' death do you think uh, we have the Gospels, the Gospels who were written? Anyone uh, know anything about the New Testament? How many years after Jesus was was Matthew written? 30, 60, 30 to 60. Well done, Tim. Just covering all the bases there. <laughs> 36 years. Okay. According to uh, some of these scholars, we know that uh, John, the Apostle John, uh, wrote his account 90 in 90 AD. So if Jesus died in, in AD 30, that's 60 years after he wrote. 60 years. It seems like a long time. Matthew and Luke were written about 80 AD and Mark was written about 70 AD, which is still 40 years after Jesus' death. When I read that, I thought, what took so long? Why, were they, why didn't they write down the account straight away. I mean, 40 years, it's, it's a long time. I mean, sometimes things could have changed over, over the 40 years. So what were they doing? What were these people doing? Well, they were planting churches. They were doing ministry. They were actually involved in running a church. They were, they were busy. They didn't have time to sit down and think, we should record this because people won't believe it. It was just a given that people knew what happened and so they didn't actually need to write a gospel account. They were writing letters to churches. 
they were running churches. And we know that because if you um, want to open your Bibles, you can follow through some of this um, in Galatians, in Galatians chapter 1. Anyone know when Galatians was written? We think that Galatians is probably the first book in the New Testament because these are the some of the the writings that were going around to the churches. Interesting thing about Galatians, and this is uh, worth considering, it says it's written by Paul, and it says in verse 1 that he claims to be an apostle. Now, an apostle had to be with Jesus for three years. That was the definition of apostle. There were lots of followers of Jesus and there were disciples, but he opens his letter in verse 1 and says, Paul, an apostle, Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by men, but Jesus Christ. And verse 11 says, I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preach is not something that man made up. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous, I'm reading verse 13. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and I tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond my many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me so that I might preach among the Gentiles, I did not consult man, any man, nor did I go to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was. But I went immediately to Arabia and later returned to Damascus. And then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter and stayed with him 15 days. So did that sink in a little bit? Paul claims to be an apostle because he received a direct revelation from Jesus. How long was Paul with Jesus? You can type it in. I just read it. Five minutes. 14 years? No. I'll read it again. Uh, verse 17, I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went immediately into Arabia and later returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem. Paul went into Arabia, into the desert, and, um, and then into Damascus. And for three years, I believe he was, Jesus was speaking to him. He was revealing scripture to him. He revealed himself to him. So for all accounts, he did an apprenticeship. He did the same amount of times as the other apostles. Uh, Jesus was with them in terms of ministry for three years. And so after the three years, he went back and he um, I went and visited Peter and then he went on about his business and then there were some issues in the church. And then 14 years later in verse, verse 1 in chapter 2, it says that he come back to Jerusalem. So... And that's how they can actually date the Galatians in terms of its its age, is that Paul basically, um, Jesus revealed himself to Paul in about uh, 32 AD and, and then Paul went and spent three years there and then 14 years later and before you know it, it's about 64 AD. And that's, this is so, so Galatians is one of the first books 
uh, written by Paul. And it's really an explanation of, one, the gospel, and then, two, some of the problems that were coming up in the church. Uh, the first one that really came up was this, this distinction between Judaism and Christianity and how do we juggle the law and the grace and all of that sort of stuff. And so Paul, he, he had good, a good understanding of who Jesus was. He came out of Judaism. He spent three years with Jesus understanding the, the gospel. And then he was debating these things with, with the apostles. So my point here is that if Paul actually was making this stuff up as he was writing, the apostles were still alive. He's actually spent time. He knew where they were. He, you know, his, his um, explanation of the gospel they would have said, hang on, mate, you, you're off the track there. It's not true. That, that, that didn't happen. And so the apostles are still alive at this point. And so even the, the debate that they had about the law and Judaism and, and Peter uh, separating himself from the Jews, Paul was really able to challenge that and put his finger on, on Peter and say, mate, this is not what Jesus would have uh, taught. So we can make a good argument that, that Paul actually saw Jesus and he what he wrote was actually true. It's written about 20 years after Jesus, which is not a long time, 20 years. Uh, and the rest of the letters, Galatians, you know, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, all of these letters, Romans, uh, Corinthians, all these letters were basically all written uh, by about 65 to 67, so 30 to 40 years after Jesus' uh, death. All of these letters had been written to churches, and so these guys were busy. And then at some point someone said, well, shouldn't we have a, a written rec record of what actually happened to Jesus, his birth and his death and all of those things? And so these guys started to write uh, the gospel. But what my point here is that all the apostles who actually saw Jesus, including Paul, they were all still alive. They are all still eyewitnesses at this point. And it wasn't just them. Paul writes to this church in Corinth. And in chapter 15, in verse 3, he says, I pass on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. This is what he says, that Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said, that he was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said. The scripture he's referring to is not the New Testament, it's the Old Testament. We haven't even talked about evidence for prophecy yet. We'll get into that later. That he was buried, that he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said, that he was seen by Peter and then by the 12, and after that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, although some have died. Then he was seen by James, and later by all the apostles, and last of all, as though I was born at the wrong time, I also saw him, for I am the least of all the apostles. In fact, I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle, possible, a possible <laughs> after the way I persecuted God's church. So within 35 years after Jesus' death, these churches had sprung up all around Asia and these people 
were receiving letters from the apostles explaining how do I live as a Christian? What does it mean? What does it look like? And these people were gathering as churches like we are today. And it's, it really started immediately after Jesus' death. Uh, the, the Gospels were written and the whole time the apostles were alive. Uh, there were at least 500 witnesses who had witnessed Jesus. And so my point is there's no way that someone could make up a lie and get away with it. You couldn't write an account and then send it around to the churches. Someone would have said something. They would have said, hang on a second, this is not true. Given the fact that it wasn't just uh, part letters being passed around, there was actually persecution at the time. People were trying to, the Jews, the Romans, was, were trying to wipe out Christianity and they were very, very aggressive um, in doing it. And so... To actually claim that something had happened, you had to put your life on the line for it. You had to be willing to die for this. And so Hebrews says that they were whipped, they were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed by the sword, they were set alight. And yet the more Christians that they killed, the more people who said, that why is this, who is this man Jesus and why is he worth dying for? I mean... That's a huge argument in, in, for the authenticity of Scripture, that people were actually willing to die for this. And so you have to ask the question, were they willing to die for a lie? Josh McDowell has written a, a book on that topic, uh, Who Would Die for a Lie? And so this is a quote from his book. Those who challenge Christianity often overlook one area of evidence, the transformation of Jesus' apostles. The radically changed lives of these men give a solid testimony for the validity of Christ's claims. I can trust the apostles' testimony because 11 of those men died martyrs, died martyrs' deaths because they stood, stood solid for two truths, Christ's deity and his resurrection. These men were tortured and flogged and most finally and finally uh, faced death by some of the cruelest methods known. The perspective I often hear is, well, those men died for a lie. And many people have done that. So what does that prove? Yes, many people have died for a lie, but they did so believing that it was the truth. If the resurrection had not happened, obviously the disciples would have known it. Therefore, they would not only have died for a lie, here's the catch, they would have known it was a lie. And it would be hard to find a group of men anywhere in history who would die for a lie if they knew it was a lie. I'm not sure if you followed his thinking there, but a lot of people die for a lie not knowing it was a lie. But he's saying the difference here is that these people died for the, knowing that this is the truth. And very, very few people would die for a lie if they knew it was actually a lie. And I would, have, I would add to this argument, uh, what did these guys have to gain? If they were willing to die for a lie, what, what would they get out of it? Surely you would, okay, I'm going to die for a lie, but, you know, my family would be set up for life or some, some evidence, some, something good would have to come out of it. And these guys weren't getting money for on book sales or anything like that. They, 
there was this is no benefit to die for a lie. So it's a it's a massive argument that these 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 um, for, for evidence for scripture that these apostles actually died uh, for the truth. If they did die for a lie. So last last week I introduced you guys as uh, the jurors, and I'm asking you to weigh up this evidence that's being presented, and to think about it, because ultimately you're the ones who have to decide for yourself if you believe the truth or you believe it's a lie, and really that's the that's what you put on on um, the plate of people you're speaking to. Mate, I can't convince you, but it's up to you. You need to decide for yourself, but here's the evidence. So if it was a lie, it would have to be the most incredible hoax in history. And for me, I've been thinking about it, I think it would take more faith to believe that it was a hoax. The amount of effort that would have had to gone into actually making this lie up and selling it and and keeping it going and having all of these people willing to die for it, uh, writing a book that was literally... Uh, historically proven that it was written only a few years after Jesus' death. Um, it's the most incredible hoax that's ever been pulled off. No one's been ever been able to disprove the Bible um, in terms of its authenticity. And so you can only come to one conclusion, jurors, that this is the truth. The Bible that you've got in your hands is actual uh, eyewitness accounts of actually what happened Um and some of the claims that were made are just outrageous claims that we will need to dig into. But these claims are based on the fact that Jesus, one, is God, and number two, that he rose from the dead. And these things, you don't just come out and say unless you've got good evidence for. And so these guys were willing to die for these two things, that Jesus was is not just a good man, who told good stories that he lived a good life, that he helped people, that he was good in social justice and all that sort of stuff, and that, that he was actually God in the flesh, that he came for a purpose. And Paul says in his letter that he was God in the flesh, that he gave his life for our sin. Now, lots of good people die, but this is a really important distinction, that he died for our sin just as the Father had planned he writes, in order to rescue us from the evil world in which we live. These are the facts that Jesus died. And so based on these these facts, we believe that if you accept these things, if you then, in, in response to these things, repent of your sin, basically, once you realise that, Jesus is God and he died for your sin, the next step, Paul says, is to repent, to actually acknowledge that I have been disobedient in living my life in, well, in disobedience to God. And so we, we acknowledge that we're sinners, we confess our sin, and then we can return to God. Father, we just thank you for all you've done for us. We could not have come up with this plan ourselves. This plan of salvation is just an incredible thing. That God, the creator of the universe, died for sinful people, people who actually willfully rebel against you 
You came into this earth because you love us so much that you wanted to restore a relationship and so your son, your own being, died in our place. And, Father, we want to acknowledge that today. And as we do, we acknowledge that that brings us to tears. We fall on our, on our knees in repentance, knowing that uh, we're just not worthy of all these great things that you have done. And so we offer our thanks and our praise and we offer our lives as a living sacrifice that's made holy because of what you've done, that we can actually go out from here today and live a life that brings honour and glory to you, not because of our good deeds, but all because of what you've done for us. And so I want to give you thanks for Jesus and everything he's done. I want to give you thanks today for your word and for those who are willing to die for it, to bring it to us. Father, we thank you, thank them, thank you for them, for their faithfulness and for their willingness to sacrifice their life for us. We give you thanks for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.